Hi, I'm Rick Atkins, pastor here at CFCC. Welcome. We hope you enjoy this sermon and that God uses it to grow you in your relationship with Him. Before we get started, our goal is not to replace your investment in a local church with online content. We were made for community. We want to encourage you to engage in a local church with your gifts. See, when the people of God invest in the community of God, they experience the transformative power of God. And that is our hope and prayer for you. Again, thanks for joining us, and we hope you enjoy the sermon. So I uh, did a thing. We were going through developing out the Hebrew study. So we break it down into sections of verses, assign each verse to a week, and that, we, that sets out the schedule for what we're supposed to teach. So we've been talking through this whole series that there's so much to the book of Hebrews that even as we're studying for eight months through one book, we are barely going to scratch the surface of this thing. So two weeks ago, I was teaching on Hebrews 5, verses 1 through 10. So I take a quick glance, get an overview of the text, start writing through it. I look at it, I'm like, hey, this is a pretty short text, so that's like the whole thing. And the chapter ends with the author saying, by this point, you should be teachers, but you're still spiritual babies crawling around in your spiritual diapers going gaga goo goo all the time. So I'm looking at all the stuff in the text. I'm like, well, this is the most poignant. This is the thing that we need to focus on. We need to give our attention to. So we spent a lot of time two weeks ago focusing on verses 11 through 14. Wait for it. I preached this week's sermon two weeks ago. Right? See, for all of our advances in medicine and technology, there is still no cure for stupid. So here we are, Exhibit A. But we're not going to call it a mistake. We're going to call it an illustration. We have been telling you this whole time that there are multiple sermons that you could draw from any one of these texts. And so in my not stupid but brilliant strategy, I said, let's stop telling them and let's show them by teaching multiple sermons out of the same text by necessity because you accidentally did the wrong one first. In summary, I'm dumb. You're welcome. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 5 starting in verse 11. And the theme that we're going to look at with this is the author talking about the importance of us as Christians growing up. This is a major theme. It's an expectation that God has for his people. God expects that his people are going to grow in their relationship with him. But sometimes the struggle we have in growing is that we approach it from the wrong perspective. We have a tendency to view our faith like a box that we check. Right? Got it, check, done, moving on. I'm a Christian, I've got the label, don't need to do anything else. But it's not a box, it's a journey. It's a journey of growth and maturity that should take up our entire life in pursuit of Jesus. But what happens so often is that we have this tendency of viewing maturity as being exclusively based on one's apparent, apparent proximity to Jesus. That is a very faulty way to look at it. Imagine life, because the Bible uses this illustration all the time, like a big race. There are people who are born really far into that race. 
because they were born in Christian homes, raised by godly parents. They grew up with the religious, churchy things being ingrained into the very fiber of their DNA. And so they know how you're supposed to talk. They know how you're supposed to look and how you're supposed to live. They learned all the secret handshakes. And so by appearance, they are in very close proximity to Jesus. And so we think, well, look at them. They've got it together. Their life is in order. They clearly are a mature Christian. And then there's other people, right, who are kind of messy, and they still make questionable choices, and there's a lot of chaos that just seems to hover around them all the time, and they haven't really learned the whole, like, Christian word replacement filter, so when they get mad, it's not shucks and heck and darn that come out of their mouth, the Christian-approved words, rather it's actual words, we're like, ooh, they need to grow up, they got some problems, And we look at them and we say, well, they're not very mature. They haven't got this figured out. They've got growing up to do. But what we never consider in that process is how far they've come. See, there are people who have had to run a marathon of obstacles and hurdles just to get to the point where the race is supposed to start, who have moved more toward Jesus than that person that was born in close proximity to him ever will. But when we consider maturity, we look only at proximity and rather ignore trajectory. And what happens then is we create this sort of box. If you can get into that box, if you can get close enough to Jesus, that means you're mature and you don't need to feel any pressure to grow anymore. And so it robs us of one of the most important aspects of the Christian life. The greatest desire that we should have in this world as followers of Jesus who have been bought with the blood of Jesus should be to grow in Jesus. Because none of us are perfect. We are all works in progress. None of us have arrived. None of us need to, don't need to grow anymore. But when we view it all as being about proximity, there comes a point where we're like, yeah, I've grown enough. I'm good enough. I'm close enough. I don't need to do anymore. I mean, I can but um, I'm kind of there, I've arrived. And when we have a faulty view of maturity, it robs us of our need or our understanding of the importance of growing. So Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. You can almost sense in this the frustration that the author has. But let me be clear, he's not frustrated because he's angry with the church. He's frustrated because he loves them. Because he's looking at these people who he deeply loves and cares for. And he sees them hurting, and he sees them struggling, and he sees them in pain. And he says, I have what you need. I can provide you with the comfort and the peace and the encouragement that you need. But I can't give it to you because you're not mature enough yet to understand it. He's frustrated that he has the tools to help them, but they're not ready to receive it. Because some of the greatest, most impactful, most powerful elements of the gospel are things that require us to grow up in order to understand. And growing up begins with hearing. And so he says that his audience, they've become, he says you've become dull in your hearing. Literally the word means you've become sluggish. And then he says, not that you are this, but you became this, indicates that this is an affliction that can beset anyone. So we ought to become aware and be careful so that we don't fall into the same problem. There are three things 
that can cause us to become sluggish in our hearing. Number one, we become argumentative. When we start debating the text and start engaging it, sometimes it's because we want to understand, but a lot of times that desire to debate allows us to engage the text intellectually while rejecting it practically. Now, I'm discussing it, I'm talking about it, we're thinking about it, we're processing it, and because I've done that, I no longer feel the weight of needing to allow it to shape and change my life. I did, I let the text in, that's why we're talking about it. It allows us to dismiss its impact. The second, and perhaps the most common in our culture, is to get offended. Whereas arguing allows us to engage the text intellectually and reject it practically. Offense allows us to engage the text emotionally and, and reject it practically. See, what we have to understand is that everything about who Jesus calls us to be runs in direct contradiction to who we desire to be in our natural selves. Everything about what Jesus calls and wants and desires from you goes against what you would want and desire for yourself, which is why Jesus says the first thing you got to do if you want to follow me is you got to die to yourself and deny yourself. Because everything that is the old you is going to try to resist the work that Jesus is doing in you. And one of the most effective tools that that old self has in preventing us from growing and being changed by the word is to push the offense button. Oh, I didn't like that. That was really harsh. That seemed really mean. That didn't make me feel good. And so now I'm upset. And what happens when we get offended is we spend so much time focusing on the feeling that we never stop to ask the question, but is it true? Hebrews 4 told us that the word of God is sharper than any double-edged sword, splitting even bone from marrow. The word of God is meant to cut. And when it does, when it does the very thing that it's intended to do, we can react in one of two ways. We get convicted or we get offended. Think back to, to Peter in the, the first Christian sermon, Acts 2, at Pentecost. Peter and the apostles are preaching, and Peter ends the sermon by saying, this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. What he says to the people is the Messiah that you've been waiting for, the Savior that you've been longing for, for thousands of years, the guy that you've prayed for and longed for your whole life, that your dad and his dad and his dad before him have been longing for, he came and you murdered him. It's a real feel-good kind of message. And what it says then is that the people who heard this were cut to the heart. That's what the gospel does. And how they respond to that is they cry out together in a loud voice, brothers, what must we do to be saved? That's conviction. In recognizing where they had been wrong, their desire was to see what they needed to change in order to align themselves with God. The alternative is offense. Offense is the enemy of growth. It prevents us from changing, from growing, from maturing. Because it doesn't like how something feels. 
It doesn't want to do anything with it. And the third way in which we tend to become sluggish in our hearing is we become deflective. Oh, that was really good. I like what you had to say about that. I wish my neighbor had been here to hear that because they really needed it. Or look at that guy. He definitely needs it. He needs it real bad. Like I go, I hear it. I like it. I agree with it. It's just not for me. I've got that part figured out. This is for someone else. And I get people tell me this all the time after sermons that I have, ever since I've been administrative, oh, I wish so-and-so was here to hear that. I'm like, I, I wish you had heard it. The difference between someone who is seeking to grow and mature in their relationship with Jesus and someone who is sluggish or dull of hearing is not what they hear. It's what they do with it. Remember the parable that Jesus tells of the two builders, one wise, one foolish. The wise builder builds his house, digs down, builds his foundation on the rock. The foolish builder builds his house on the sand. And Jesus says the storm comes and the wise builder's house is still there and the guy who built the sand castle, that got blown away. What's he say the difference between the two guys is? The wise builder heard his words and put them into practice, and the foolish builder heard his words and didn't. The difference between someone who is receiving and growing in the word of God and someone who is sluggish in their hearing is not the amount that they hear. It's what they do with it. Verse 12. For by this time you ought to be teachers, but you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. So the milk here is the basic foundational element. It's the simple core of the gospel that we are sinners that have fallen short of the glory of God, that each and every one of us rebelled against God and rejected God, and that in our sin we were by nature objects of God's wrath, deserving of death and eternal condemnation. But God, who is rich in mercy and abounding in love, sends his son Jesus to be made like us in every way, to step onto the cross in our place as a substitutionary sacrifice, taking the penalty and the price for sin upon himself as a propitiation for sin, to turn away God's wrath against sin and to mold all who believe and seek to obey him into children of God who become recipients of his grace and life. That's the milk. That's the basic gospel, and it is good news, and it is wonderful, and it is joy, but there is so much more to the word of God than that. There are helps and treasures and comforts and joys all throughout his word that we have to grow up if we want to be able to receive, and we should long for that, because look, there's nothing wrong with milk. Milk is great. In fact, milk has a lot of nutrients that our body needs, which means that even the most mature Christian should consistently circle back to the fundamental elements of the gospel that we never lose sight of that. But there has to be more to our diet than just milk. There has to be more than just the basics. Like, listen, you go out to eat with a friend at a big old steakhouse, right? And he says, hey, I'm going to cover the cost. Don't get whatever you want. Don't worry about it. Just order whatever you want. Like, I'm thinking about, like, a big, juicy steak, right? My man. Look, I don't, I, love, I don't know what the vegetarian equivalent to that is. Like, maybe, like, a big old piece of broccoli or something. Or, like, a salad with a weird, like, fruit topping. Like, I don't know what it is. I know that your food is what my food eats. So, there's that. 
But you go, let's say, okay, you've been all day. You haven't eaten anything. You are famished. And you go to your favorite place that has your favorite dish. And you're going, how's it going? Can I just get a, a cup of milk for dinner? But not like the adult cup, right? The 12-ounce glass, that's probably a little bit too much. Can I just get it in the kid's cup so it's got a lid in case I can't finish it all? Like, you're famished. You're starving. Who's ordering a glass of milk for dinner? No, it's fine when you're a 12-pound baby and you have no teeth. Milk is fine as a form of substance. But when you are bigger, you require more to sustain you. And we should long for more. God's word is this incredible feast that God has laid out for us, filled with so many incredible things. And too often, we miss out on that feast because we sit ourselves at the kiddie table sucking down a bottle of milk and drinking applesauce because we haven't learned how to chew. So he says, hey, grow up so that you can sit at the big kid table and eat the real food. It's so much better than that weird applesauce in a squeeze pack that you got going on. Before I get myself in trouble, verse 13. <clears throat> For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. What this means is debated between two camps. One camp says the focus here is on the word of righteousness. This is about what you know. It's about understanding the things of Jesus. And so to be skilled in the word of righteousness means you need to grow in your knowledge and your understanding of God by spending time in the word. The other side says, no, no, look, it says skilled. That's about conduct. This isn't about what you know. This is about how you live. It's about practically following the example of Jesus in your life. And the question is, well, which camp gets it right? And the answer is, they both do. In order to faithfully follow Jesus, you have to know him. You have to know who he is. You have to know what he said. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. How can you obey his commands if you don't know what they are? Following Jesus and knowing Jesus are like diet and exercise. When you put them together, the one fuels the other. Knowing more about Jesus understanding him better, who he is and what he has done for us fuels our desire to pursue and live for him. And pursuing and seeking to live for him fuels our recognition that we need to continue to grow in our understanding of him so that we can more faithfully do so. When you emphasize both, knowing Jesus and living for Jesus, you generate a system that naturally produces growth. Verse 14 but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So here's the practical answer to the question of how. How do we grow? How do we become mature? How do we get to solid food? Training and practice. Now, you're not going to go to bed one night and have a weird dream and then wake up and be like, wow, I've got it all figured out now. I understand the things of God. It's not going to happen to you accidentally by osmosis. Growing and maturing in God is like learning any skill. It takes time, it takes practice, it takes training, it takes desire. And then we move into chapter 6. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, laying again, not laying again, a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith towards God as an instruction about washing 
and the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. What's interesting here is the author starts off saying, you're not ready for solid food, you still need milk, and then he proceeds to not give them milk. His solution to their spiritual immaturity is not to give them more milk, but rather to challenge them to grow. So growth happens naturally and at times through external motivation. And most of the time what happens in our lives is we will grow until the point where it becomes challenging or uncomfortable to do so, and then we will stop. At which point, we need something external to come along and to motivate us to take that next step because the next step is uncomfortable, and so we are resistant to it. Look, pacifiers are fine, but there gets to a point where you got to take the pacifier away because it's weird. Right? Drinking from a bottle is fine, but there's a point where you take the bottle away and you give them a big boy cup. And what happens when you make that transition? A whole lot of mess. Right? Because for the beginning part of it, they don't know what to do with that cup. They don't understand it. They're dumping it out all over themselves. They're making a great big mess. And so, yes, taking the next step in development requires work. There's a process. There's a mess. There's effort that goes into it. But we take it because we need you to grow. Or potty training, that's super fun. Highly recommend that. Right? you got a kid that spent their whole life in a diaper just going to the bathroom wherever they are. And then you're like, okay, let's take the diaper away and teach you to go in this weird circular white thing. And what happens? They can have accidents. It's messy. It's gross. You do a whole lot more laundry. But you do it because it gets really weird if the kid's still in diapers when they're 12. Growing up is messy. You don't get it right the first time. You make every time you take a new step, you encounter a new challenge. It takes work. But it's all a part of the journey that we can experience more of the fullness of what life has. So what he lays out in these verses are six fundamental teachings paired into three groupings of two. The first is soterological. That is, it deals with understanding salvation. And it's essentially two parts of the same idea. The first is because we naturally, as people, trust in ourselves. We rely on ourselves. We depend on ourselves. And so when it comes to salvation, we place our faith in our own goodness. It's our performance, our works, how we live. When somebody says, do you deserve to go to heaven? The default answer most of us have, yeah, I'm a good person. I lived a good life. I did good things. I didn't do bad things. Right? We naturally trust our performance. And so what he says is salvation comes from taking your trust off of yourself, from dead works, because none of that is going to save you, and placing that trust on Jesus, putting your trust in him, putting your faith in him as the source of salvation. The second two pairings are about pneumology, that is understanding the work of the Spirit. The first being the washing, that is a ceremonial, ritualistic cleansing process that was done in the Jewish cultures for purification. We would refer to it, if you want to hear lots of nerdy words, as progressive sanctification. And that is the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, shaping and molding us to look more like Jesus. And the second, the laying on of hands, was done for the ordination of ministry. When someone was called to the work of the gospel. Here's the fun part. 
He's not talking to church leaders. He's not talking to an elite few. He's talking to Christians. What that tells us and what we will see throughout the book of Hebrews is that we are all called to the work of Jesus. We are all given the mission of Jesus and the service to and the advancement of the gospel and the discipleship. All of the things that are imperative in the Christian narrative are not just for church leaders and paid staff. They are for all who would follow Jesus. And so what he says is the work of the Holy Spirit here is to purify you from your sin, mold you to be more like Jesus, and then equip and send you out to go do the work of Jesus. And then the last three are eschatological. They're about the end. That life comes from Jesus, and that all will be judged by Jesus. The center of each of these three pairings is Jesus. Salvation starts with Jesus, it ends with Jesus, and the life in between is about Jesus. Jesus saves us from our sin. Jesus empowers us to do his work as we live with him, and then Jesus brings us into eternal life with him. Every aspect of it is all about Jesus. And the reason we have these six things paired here the way they are was that this was actually designed as the gospel for Jewish converts. And what it did was it allowed a Jewish convert to grow more quickly because they had a pre-existing understanding of the framework of the Old Testament. And so rather than starting from scratch like you would with a pagan convert, they said, hey, let's take all of this and we're going to impose Jesus over it so that you can see the greater purpose that those things had. But the problem was, despite the advantage that this gave, the church still wasn't growing. Growth is a natural part of life. The rule of nature is that all living things grow. And where there is not growth, there is not life. And that thought should become concerning. Now, I want to be very clear with that before we take it too far. We all have seasons where growth is really, really slow. We all have times in our life where that growth is imperceptible. That doesn't mean growth isn't happening. It just means that sometimes we don't see it. Like when you plant a seed in the ground, there's a period of time where you cannot see any growth. But where growth for prolonged periods of time does not occur, we should become concerned. I think the reason, church, that we so often fail to see the growth that God intends us to have comes back to our own very nature. So I'll stand here, and I can say, you need to spend more time in the Word. And that is true for every person in this room, myself included. You can go, Pastor, I read the Word for 30 minutes a day in the morning before I even have coffee. The Word is my coffee, and then I have my coffee to go back to the rest of the world. You should read the Word more. You should be in it more. There is no point that you can spend so much time in the Word that it's like, yeah, you're good. You don't need any more of that. We could all benefit from more time in the Word. But here's what happens. I make that statement, you should be in the Word more, and many, if not most of us, our innate response is to feel guilty. Oh man, that's really, I don't have time for that. How dare you put that weight on me? That's so rude. We feel guilty. Because we think of the Bible and the things of God as uh, things we're obligated to do, things that we're supposed to do, so when we don't do them, we feel bad about it. See, the operant mode of the church for generations has been a process of guilt and shame. 
Here's the things you're supposed to do. And if you don't do those things, we're going to make you feel guilty. We're going to criticize you and judge you and shame you until you do them. And here's the things you're not supposed to do. And if you don't, if you do the things that you're not, we're going to shame you and criticize you and judge you until you learn to do them. Well, here's the problem with that. It's terrible. Even when the goal is right and you're aiming at the right target, that is the absolute worst approach. You cannot develop a healthy relationship being fueled by shame. Guilt and shame are some of the worst motivators in the world. And yet for generations, we've used fire and brimstone, fear, guilt and shame to try to motivate people to do the things that God calls them to do. And then we wonder why they're resistant to do it. That system's dumber than me. I'm saying something. We don't read the word. We feel guilty. We don't spend time in prayer. We feel guilty. We skip church. We feel guilty. Shame is so intrinsic in our culture, especially in the religious mind, that it is often our default response. But what happens when you leave guilt unchecked? It turns into resentment. When you feel guilty about something for long enough, you begin to resent what you believe caused you to feel that way. And so all of a sudden, we start blaming God for making us feel guilty for not doing things that would help us grow in Him. And so then rather than drawing near to God, we start pushing away. But this motivation is completely foreign to Scripture. Matthew 4, 4, Jesus says, man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jeremiah 15, 16, where your words were found, I ate them, and they became a joy and the, and the delight of my heart. John 6, I am the bread of life. Whoever eats of me will not grow hungry again. In fact, John, in his gospel, notes that Jesus is the word and Jesus is the bread of life. The Bible's approach to itself is not, you need to read this, you woeful, shameful human being who's failed to do so. The Bible's imagery is, this word of God is the food for our soul. Food is something that we need. It's something that we desire, something that we crave. And food is not just something that sustains us. Food can comfort us. Food can bring us joy. Food can energize us and empower us. There are so many things that food does in our lives. We don't read the word. We don't spend time in the word. We feel guilty. We don't spend time in prayer. We feel guilty. How do you feel when you miss a meal? That's the problem in our approach. We treat the things of God like obligations that we are required to do, and we feel guilty and ashamed when we don't do them. But if we could train ourselves... If we could teach ourselves to see the word as God describes it, as God desires for it to be a spiritual food, then it becomes the thing that fuels us and feeds us and sustains us. Then in times of hardship, we go to that for comfort. In times of brokenness, we go to that for healing. If it's the thing that we grow and we develop and we long for. See, church, when you don't read the word, when you don't spend time in the Bible, you should not feel guilty. You should feel hungry. 
And if you can change the approach that you have, the way that you fundamentally perceive the things of God, it will change how you grow in Him. God doesn't want you to come to Him out of obligation or guilt or fear of what will happen if you don't. He wants you to desire Him, to long for Him. And so He says, my word is food for your souls. Come to me and have me that you might be filled. The greatest desire of the Christian heart should be to grow in Jesus. Sometimes that takes work. Sometimes it takes discipline and practice and training. Sometimes it means stepping into the uncomfortable. But the reward for doing so is more Jesus. Every time we take a step in him, every time we grow in him, we obtain access to more of the feast that he has prepared for us in his word that we might have greater filling and greater joy and greater comfort in him. The author is addressing a church that's, that's struggling. They're shaking in their faith. They're going through hardships and struggles, and he's frustrated because if you were just mature, this wouldn't even phase you because your perspective is off. Don't deny yourself the wondrous treasures that God has in store for you by choosing to remain a spiritual infant. Grow in him that you might know greater the depth of his mercy and grace that God offers us comfort in any hardship, peace in any storm. That what he gives is life in a world that surrounds us with death. But when we don't know him beyond the basic milk, we are missing out on all that he longs to give us. Like he gave us himself. We take communion together as a reminder of what Jesus has given to us the life that he gave that through him we could live the blood that he shed so that we could be made right with God for the Jesus who has given us so much who gave it all for us shouldn't we strive to obtain all that he has for us when we take these elements together, the bread that represents his body, which was broken for us, this is a reminder that this is all about Jesus. That our hearts and our pursuits should be focused on him. That every time we take of this, we remember what he did for us. That that understanding might create a desire to grow in him. Let's take the bread together. This cup represents the blood, the life of Jesus poured out. And when we take his life into our life, may our prayer be that he would transform us into his likeness.
Let's take the juice together. Heavenly Father, we praise you for who you are. For not just giving us life, but for preparing this wonderful feast for us. God, stir our hearts that we would have an endless hunger for more of you, that we would desire you, need you like water, that we would pursue understanding of you like it is the food for our souls, that we would consume ravenously our pursuit of you, that we would never be satisfied with where we are, but that we would always be seeking to grow and to know more about you, that our lives would be a testimony to the power and the goodness of you. God, steal from us the guilt and shame that has defined us our whole lives and replace it with a hunger for you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for grace. Amen.